Welcome back in everyone to a very exciting episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have two wonderful artists joining us today. We have the playwright Jeremy Tiang and the director Michael Liebenluft, both who are with Yangtze Rep in association with Gung Ho Project's presentation of Salesman Je Su. It's playing October 10th through the 28th at the Connolly Theater, and tickets and more information are available at yzrep.org. We are very excited to be bringing you this show. The minute that it popped up on our radar, we knew that it was going to be something huge. We just finished reading a wonderful book about Arthur Miller, and this very event this show talks about was in it. With that, let's go ahead and bring on our guests. Jeremy, Michael, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I am beyond excited to have the two of you here. As I mentioned before we started, I was reading a book by John Lair about Arthur Miller, and this very event was in there, and it it made me pause to think about how this, you know, famous story, the death of a salesman, would do in China, which is where this production went up. And lo and behold, now we have this great show, Salesman, just that's being done to tell this kind of story in a way. And I'm doing a really terrible job of explaining the show. So let me start with you, Jeremy. Can you tell us a little bit about what this show is about? Yes. So in 1983, Arthur Miller went to Beijing to direct Death of a Salesman, his most famous play in Chinese, despite never having directed before and also not speaking Chinese. Despite what might seem to be insurmountable obstacles, the production was a huge success and it was a a fantastic rendition of the play. Even though China had at the time just come out of the Cultural Revolution and had little contact with the outside world, which meant a majority of the audience was not familiar with the context being portrayed, did not know what a salesman was. Many had no idea who Arthur Miller was other than a famous American playwright. So it's a story about how across a vast gap, artists can come together and create something that is that brings together the best of their worlds, that is a true collaboration, that art can be a finding of common ground, and that we are stronger when we try to understand each other rather than when we stick close to the familiar. That is absolutely amazing. Truly. I, I Again, it. this is a story that has piqued my interest in more than one ways. So I cannot wait to know more about it. And I want to follow up that with asking you, how did you come up with the idea for this play? Or what inspired you to, you know, write about this? Well, essentially, Michael. Michael came to me and said, I've got a workshop planned and I want to work on this 1983 production of Death of a Salesman in Beijing. And I had read Arthur Miller's book, Salesman in Beijing, in in college, because I wrote a paper on Arthur Miller. And I had been curious about the very same questions you asked yourself. How did this actually work? What was that like? And so Michael and I started looking at this together. And the more we dived into it, the more we watched the production, which anyone can do because they filmed it for Chinese TV and it is available 
in its entirety on YouTube, the more we looked at it and saw how the artistry of the Beijing People's Art Theatre came in contact with Arthur Miller's own artistry and how they produced something richer and deeper as a result of this collaboration. The more we felt that there was something very resonant here about our times, about how it can feel like the world is becoming increasingly polarized and that it's becoming difficult to speak across the many gaps we find between us and others. And here was a collaboration that took place at a time when it should have been impossible. And it produced this amazing thing. And so we knew we had to tell the story and it became a site where we could investigate many of the questions that had interested us for a long time. That's fantastic. I want to bring our director on, Michael, now. And, and I want to ask, you know, what has it been like developing this show, getting it ready for its world premiere? It's been a, a very long, and I think it's, it's been a long journey that's impacted me really deeply. As an artist, we have been working on this project now for about six years. I am bilingual, so I have I learned Chinese towards the end of high school and into college and then moved to China to direct and teach theater there. And so a lot of this project came out of my own experiences directing abroad or directing in China as an American director and often directing American plays in translation there and starting to kind of question my role in that space and the artistry the, the power dynamics, the questions about storytelling and identification that come up when you're working between cultures in that way. And so I think I started this project in a way to explore those questions in community and with other artists and theater makers, particularly a kind of intercultural collective of, of theater makers in New York, who some folks come originally from the U.S. and then we also have artists from across the Chinese diaspora from throughout the world who are all based in New York, but bring their own perspectives to the piece. So I think there's been a whole kind of intercultural, multilingual collaboration, way of working community that has developed out of necessity and out of our passions in building the piece which is part of what's behind it. And then there's the piece itself. So it has become almost more than just a play that we're making. I feel like we're also trying to figure out how to work together. How do you produce a multilingual play in New York City? How do you cultivate an audience for that? How do you talk about it? How do you create a piece for multiple audiences or, or not even multiple audiences? How do you create a piece that um, can embrace the linguistic, the cultural diversity of, of New York City in its fullest. So there's been a lot of questions that have come up in that process, and, and along with our own connecting with the some of the original artists who were involved in the production in the 80s who are still around. Um, so that's been a whole other piece of the process. So it's it's been it's been quite a a long and rich journey, I think, so far. And I'm really excited to to finally share it with, with audiences in about a week. That is so exciting. Let me kind of build on the, the thought you shared regarding that the show is a bilingual show. It's very evident right out the gate with its title. And I think I might've butchered it, but I'll try again, but it's salesman. Just let me ask what that means. First of all, in the title 
And what motivated you to create this show to be bilingual? Well, Jusu is the Mandarin for death of. So the title is just death of a salesman, but expressed bilingually. And the rationale for the title is just the play is bilingual. Shouldn't the title be as well? And for people who don't speak these two particular languages or who only speak one of them, the title creates some friction as you try to say it or try to understand it. And maybe that's the way it should be, because one of the things that the play tries to explore is the movement between languages and how that can create discomfort and how that discomfort is productive and worth engaging with rather than trying to shy away from. I think in our society, we often make translation invisible. We often prefer to see translation as an invisible process and don't engage with it. Everything just comes into the language that we can grapple with. But what if we put these Chinese characters in the name and then have to spend a lot of time explaining to people how they're pronounced, have to make sure that they are rendered correctly each time the title appears in print? Why don't we do that difficult thing and actually engage with that discomfort? As for why the play is bilingual, I think there are two answers to that. The first is that it was a bilingual process. If you were in that rehearsal room in Beijing in 1983, you would have heard both languages. So why not present it as it was? Why have the Chinese characters speaking English, which they wouldn't have, or have Arthur Miller speaking Chinese, which he wouldn't have? Everyone just speaks the language they would have spoken. But the other thing is I grew up in Singapore, and it's of a multilingual country. Singapore has four official languages. I grew up watching theatre that has many languages in it. So I, I think the question isn't why create a bilingual play. The question is why is so much of American theatre monolingual? Like we live in a multilingual world. Why doesn't our theatre reflect that? I want to copy that question and that thought, put it on t-shirts, put it on banners. That is such a brilliant thought. I love it. I want to build on the all these ideas that we've been discussing. And Michael, I want to start with you first as the director and ask, what is the message or thought you're hoping that audiences take away from the show? Yeah, I think Jeremy already started to articulate a lot of that. But I, I think I think part of what we're trying to bring audiences into is the messiness, the artistry, the importance of, I mean, these are all different ways of talking about it, but the the kind of space between cultures and languages that I think it it feels like, I'll say at least particularly in like in American society, I think people often try to avoid or or or, or shy away from or are afraid of, and and the the importance of leaning into spaces where you may not be able to fully understand, you may not be. Um, totally comfortable. It may be outside of what you know in your own background. And the the ability of art, of theater making, of performance to bring us into deeper conversation and connection to be able to more bravely enter into those spaces. And the way that that can change us individually as artists, the way that it can change the really the trajectory of someone's life, and then the way that that also hopefully ripples out to our audiences. So it's both about the the individual journeys through creating the work and then also how that transformation um, extends into the communities that we share the work with. So I think that the, in some ways it's simply about, I think the importance, the power of, of cultural exchange, but also that cultural exchange can sound, I think often like a very grand 
diplomatic idea. And I think cultural exchange can happen at any moment at any time between people who have any any sort of difference, right? So it can happen on the street, it can happen in our families, in our neighborhoods, right? Like, so I think it's leaning into that and the sometimes the humor of that, the fun of that, and and kind of embracing that in all its ways. That is wonderful. Love that. Jeremy, how about you as a playwright? What is the message or thought you're hoping the audiences will take away from the show? Honestly, as a playwright, I try not to go into a production hoping that someone will take a particular thing away. I'm, I'm more interested in asking questions and I'm more interested in saying here is a presentation, an exploration of a process that is perhaps not familiar to many of you. Here are people working multilingually, working across cultural gaps. Let's examine what that might be like. Let's explore it. And maybe it will spark a thought in you for your own life. Maybe it will change the way you view the making of art. Maybe it will make you more adventurous in your consumption of theatre. Or maybe it will spark something else altogether. So trying not to and reverse engineer a play, I think frees me to be as engaged in the exploration process as I hope the audiences will be, rather than thinking, okay, this is where I want people to get to, and so I'm going to drive everything to that end. I prefer things to be open and to say, here is something that I am exploring. My view of literally everything in this has shifted as I've been making it. And I hope that in experiencing it, you too will find yourself thinking things that you haven't thought before. That is a wonderful answer as well. Loving all of this insight you're sharing. And that brings us to my final question for this first part of the interview, which is, who do you hope have access to your show? And Jeremy, I'd like to start with you first on that, if I may. I think the short answer is everyone. And to expand on that, particularly people who maybe haven't seen theatre that is made for them, haven't seen art that is made for them. We are surtitling the entire show in both English and Chinese. That is, the Chinese lines will be subtitled in English, but also the English lines will be surtitled in Chinese. So someone who only speaks one of these languages will be able to come and see the show and have a full experience of it. What we absolutely didn't want to do was to presume an English-speaking audience. And perhaps there will be people who are not fully fluent in English, um, but who speak Chinese and who have not seen theatre that is made for them, who will come to it and find that they can engage with this. That there might be other demographics whom we will discover that we need to cater to along the way, and hopefully we'll find a show that, a way to make, hopefully we'll find a way to make the show accessible to them too. The, the question of access really, for us, for me anyway, is the other way around. I, I think the question I like to ask myself is who doesn't have access to this show and how can we change that? I love that. I've, I've never heard it put that way before and I really like that. Michael, how about you? Who are you hoping to have access to your show? 
don't think I have too much to add beyond what, what Jeremy has shared. I mean, I do think that I'll just emphasize that I think for us, particularly in, in building a play that is about language, is about translation, is about what it cannot be translated or understood necessarily. And it's about, in some ways, the the language of theater, of performance. I think that language is a question also of inclusion and accessibility. And I think that I don't see it as commonly presented as such. And I think that we, we have been trying to particularly focus on bringing audiences into the theater who may typically feel excluded from theater and from performances in New York City because they may not have they, they may not have English ability or they may not feel comfortable attending a performance in English. And I think that in doing that, we're it is it is a challenge because it's a larger, it's it's it, language is a component of it, but it's also about how does marketing work, how are tickets priced, what neighborhood do we present the piece in? And there's a lot of ways in which I think that we're trying to kind of shift the relationship between particularly like more maybe experimental or off-off-Broadway theater, various communities in New York City and kind of bridge those gaps. And it's a it's a heavy lift. And I think, frankly, it's something that I wish I could be doing more of, but in some ways, I'm so maxed out and just making the show that it's sort of like, for other jobs that I wish I could be doing at the same time. But hopefully it can be part of a longer conversation within the field so that we can be collaborating with other organizations, other institutions to really join in this effort in kind of expanding how we bring people into, into seats and into see the work that we make. And I now want to start our second part of the interview by letting our listeners get a chance to get to know you two a little bit better. Pick your brains, you know, just get to know you a little bit more personally. And I want to start by asking the two of you, what or who inspires you? What playwrights, composers, or shows have inspired you in the past? Or are just some of your favorites? Jeremy, I'd like to start with you first on that, if I may. I really admire artists who work across languages and cultures, who push out of their comfort zones, or who perhaps exist in between defined zones of language or heritage or community, and who use that as a productive site of inquiry. I'm, I'm really into work that is hard to categorize or that refuses to be categorized. Right now, I'm really into the artistic output of Ayo Ogawa, who is a fantastic translator of Japanese plays and also a wonderful performer, playwright, director. I, I've seen multiple iterations of their play, The Nosebleed, and seen its evolution as Aya really drilled down into the questions that they're asking about language, about belonging, about family. And there's something really heartbreaking about the honesty and directness of their storytelling um, and also their performance as their own father in the play and the way they use that as a kind of ritual to, to deal with past pain. Not, not in a way that could ever 
exorcise the ghosts of the past, but to acknowledge and accept that something traumatic and sad has happened and that sitting with it and grappling with it is the only way to move forward. I love that answer. I love that you brought that artist up. We are big fans of Ayagawa. We were huge fans of her show, The Nosebleed, and having her on our program when it was running was incredible. So thank you for for bringing her into this conversation. I love that. Michael, how about you? What or who inspires you? Yeah, I guess I'll take the the easy road on this one. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I, I have drawn inspiration, or I think a lot of this, this production began from drawing inspiration from the collaboration in the 80s between Miller and the Beijing People's Art Theater. And I think that it's less about any one individual in that process and more trying to think about the kind of bravery and curiosity and commitment that all of those artists brought to that process in a time when it was, I guess, in some ways, perhaps easier, but in, in many more ways, much harder to bring to, to bridge those divides in terms of how closed off China and the U.S. had been just years before that. Sort of the amount that it took to get all those artists in a room in conversation with each other is really, I think, hard to fully comprehend in today's world. And so I think that part of the my curiosity, part of what I've been trying to explore in this project is sort of like what it took for those artists, what kind of grace and patience and openness they had to have to be able to engage in that, that collaboration and how can we learn from it. And also, I think it should force us to think, why hasn't it become easier? Why does it feel like in today's world, artists of similar stature are coming together to create something, even with the amount of globalization and technology and other forms of interconnectedness that we have and, and, and joint knowledge, like it almost seems harder to make that happen. And I think that that is really dispiriting in a way. It's like, we see all these, I see all these grants and programs and festivals that have been supporting intercultural collaboration and touring, they've they've really been drying up and they really it really feels like it's been sort of deprioritized in some ways, at least in the theater landscape more locally in New York. And I think that that, I find that really discouraging. And so I sort of, part of the project for me is looking to our artistic forebears or like artistic ancestors to kind of see how did they do it and how can we draw inspiration from that? That is a fantastic answer as well. Have either of you seen any great theater lately that you might be able to recommend to our listeners? I saw Jerry Lieblick's new play, uh, Machinerator, at The Tank, which is running through October, which is kind of opens up an interesting conversation, I think, with our piece, because it's written in a pseudo form of English, kind of like a cousin of English that Jerry invented. And so I found myself sitting in the audience for that piece in a place where I wasn't sure if I was losing language or gaining a new one, because you almost start to understand new ideas just by intonation and inflection and context and trope of genre and storytelling. And at the same ways, at the same time, you experience sort of all these words that you feel like you should know, but actually you've never heard before. And so I think that space of comprehension, the toying with language that 
they're working with in that piece is 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 really fun and i would encourage people to go check it out i think it speaks to our current obsessions that my recommendation is also a play that messes with language earlier this year i saw shayok misha chowdhury's play um, public obscenities at soho rep and that's a play that very boldly puts the Bangla language center stage, where large chunks of the play are in Bangla, and unapologetically shows the movement between languages of the central character who's returning from the US to Kolkata and moving between languages and cultures in doing so, but also just puts the language on stage and has the audience grapple with it. The night I saw it, there were small pockets of the audience laughing at certain lines and not the rest of us. And that's when I knew, okay, this is a line that's funny in Bangla, but that the surtitles aren't able to fully convey. And that's great. I, I hope that at our play, there will be certain lines that maybe only the Chinese speaking audience will get. And that's okay. Not everything has to be or can be fully translated. Public Obscenities is coming to theatre for a new audience early next year. So if you missed it in its previous incarnation, I thoroughly recommend catching it then. Yes, yes. Two great recommendations. I love it. I want to ask you two now, what is your favorite part about working in the theatre? And Jeremy, may I please start with you on that first? Well, I'm a writer and translator, and mostly I translate novels. So my average workday is me sitting alone in my room at a laptop. So my favorite part of making theater is I actually get to leave my apartment and go be in a room with other people. More seriously, my favorite part of the process is how collaborative it is. And I really think that art is better made in company. Like, that's the part of the process that is me sitting alone at my laptop. But when I'm in a room with others, the inspiration that I draw from being in close proximity to other artists and from seeing them practice their crafts really fuels and informs my writing. And it's a much richer process than if I just sat, written a script in a vacuum and handed it out to be staged. So I feel really lucky that I get to be in the rehearsal room. I get to be part of the workshops and I get to draw so much inspiration from the creativity of others in the creation of the script. That is a super answer. Yes. Michael, how about you? What is your favorite part about working in the theater? Yeah, I mean, I I started a theater company called Gung Ho Projects that is dedicated to making multilingual and intercultural theater. And so I think for me, I theater is a, is a space to create community across culture, across language and explore ideas. And I can only do that in collaboration with others. So for this project, actually, before we even... So, so I, when I had the idea for this project and sort of instigated it in 2017, the first thing that I did was kind of bring together all of the bilingual Chinese and English speaking theater makers I knew in New York City to start to just talk about the history of the 1983 production 
and thinking think about salesmen bilingually. And it's I think it's an example of I could never create interculturally in a way with just from my own experience, just from my own. It wouldn't make any sense. So theater for me is a way of it's a sort of framework for building that community and for having those conversations through the process of making the work itself. Also a fantastic answer. I love it. And it leads us to my favorite question to ask guests, and that is, what is your favorite theater memory? Maybe favorite isn't the exact word to describe this memory, but it's a memory that has come to mind, which is, I'm actually thinking a lot about the last day of day or two of rehearsal for this production in 2020, in March 2020. So we were a week away from beginning tech, basically, when we were in rehearsals. And while we were in rehearsals, all, all I remember all of the actors sort of getting the news of Broadway shutting down on their phones. And then it was sort of like, do we continue rehearsal, knowing what is what is sort of inevitable here? And then we gathered the next day and had a sort of goodbye party, which in retrospect was not the best idea. But I guess I think about that memory because of the way that it speaks to me about the power of the community and the group that we had built that was actually really essential to me in the kind of terrifying first weeks of the pandemic. And we stayed in touch remotely and it was devastating to have the production shut down, but I do think it's also part of the kind of DNA and journey of this piece. And I think it's in something that I, you know, some of the artists who are in that production are involved in this current incarnation and some are not. And sort of our lives have evolved, but I, I do think that the ability for that company to stay connected and, and almost become stronger in some ways through those those difficult, what began as weeks and then became years essentially is to me speaks to the power of the, the community that we can get by making theater together. That is a wonderful memory and a wonderful thought. Thank you so much for sharing that. I had really bad flashbacks to that day a, a couple of days ago when we were in the rehearsal room. Um, this was last Friday and only half the cast had make it, made it in and we were getting messages on our phone that the others might not. Michael was stuck in a tunnel under the East River and we had this thing of should we wait and see if Michael can arrive as he's literally running across Brooklyn to get to us or should we send everyone home before we all get trapped in Manhattan and we were at roughly the same point in the rehearsal process as that day in March 2020 when we had to send everyone home for as it turned out the next three years that that's that's not my favorite theater of memory my favorite theatre memory or a favourite is in a somewhat happier time in 2019 when uh, Michael and I collaborated on a project to bring over three queer Taiwanese playwrights who had written short plays in response to the passing of marriage equality in Taiwan, the first such law in Asia. And it was a microcosm of what we hoped theatre could be, this cross-cultural collaboration where this event had happened in Taiwan and Taiwanese playwrights were going to write a response to it. I was going to translate these pieces, Michael directed them, and they were staged in New York by a group of 
mostly bilingual um, theatre artists in English. And that was the sort of interaction that I think only theatre could produce, well, or in this particular way, because of how live theatre is, how it's apprehended in the moment, and how it's created in the room by whoever happens to be in that room. And bringing people over, working through these languages, and finding a way to, for example, render traditional Taiwanese opera into some version of English performance was a wonderful challenge. And it, it was electric to experience. That sounds incredible. Wow. Thank you both for sharing those incredible memories. I love those. Do either of you have any other projects or productions coming down the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? As I said, I mostly translate books. So I have books to plug, but but I am translating a book of short stories by a former Malayan communist guerrilla. Delicious Hunger by Haifan is out with Tilted Axis Press next year. So do look out for that. That is wonderful. I've been creating a docuseries called how to have sex in a pandemic, which is about queer community, sex, and intimacy in the context of COVID and also drawing lessons from the height of the HIV epidemic. And uh, episode two of that series will be making its New York premiere at New Fest on October 13th as part of their Frisky Fridays episodic series, I think. So you can check that out. That is very cool as well. My final question for the two of you is if our listeners want more information about Salesman, Jesu, or about either of you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do that? Well, for information about Salesman Jesu, interested listeners can go to yzrep.org for information and tickets about the play. As for us... It's very easy to track us down. I can be found at jeremytiang.com and at any and all social media. And Michael may be found at gungho-projects.com. That's G-U-N-G-H-O projects.com. But there's also information about salesman and my other work. We also have a pronunciation guide to the title of the play, on the show website for anyone who desires it. Well, perfect. Well, Jeremy, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time this morning to speak with me about your incredible show. I am so excited to see it. And I'm so glad we have this opportunity to share it with our listeners. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrew. My guests today have been the playwright Jeremy Tiang and the director Michael Liebenluft, both who were with Yangtze Rep in association with Gung Ho Project's presentation of Salesman, Jesu. It's playing October 10th through the 28th at the Conley Theater, and you can get your tickets and more information by visiting yzrep.org. We also have some contact information for our guests, which we'll be posting on our episode description and our social media posts. But right now, head to yzrep.org, get your tickets for this incredible show. You don't want to miss it. The show is Salesman Jesu, 
playing October 10th through the 28th. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.